Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. Church, we have to acknowledge that um, when God is present, things do happen. And um, Jane down here on the front row just leaned across to me in the first song we were singing there and said, Ben, I was just healed of my sciatica. Like, yeah, wow. No one prayed for it. I'm sure Jane was praying for it, but no one prayed for it, laid hands on it. The presence of God brings healing. The presence of God brings peace. And yeah, let's give the Lord a hand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just quickly, how good is this worship team? And yeah, absolutely. And not to single anybody out, but how awesome is it when the drums just go nuts like that? And Mr. Parnell is going off. I love it. It's fantastic. So, all right, everybody, grab a seat. Thank you, worship team. You guys do rock, literally and figuratively. Steve's just going to fix me up here. We good? We better? Oh, there we go. Look at that. Now I can use my hands. Fantastic. Okay. Oh, all right. I'm going to ask you to do something. Some of you might not feel overly comfortable with. It's going to be a little bit cliche Pentecostal. Turn to the person next to you and say, good decision. Good decision. Good. Well done. Just like Amy said, you all made a good decision coming to church this morning. And the thing is, it doesn't matter whether I preach like a chook and the message is terrible or if it turns out okay because you've shown up. And nine times out of ten, that's actually all that God asks of us. So let's be expectant. We've shown up. And God's going to do something this morning. Well, we are still in our beyond month, as you heard before. We're looking at the call of our lives, all of our lives, to share the gospel with those outside the walls of the church. And we've continued to use Matthew 5, 14 and 16 as our scripture over this, this season. But for this month, the focus has shifted to the passage of that portion where it says that God is not a secret to be kept. Now, I have a confession to make. I had a moral dilemma, perhaps two days ago now. I had the choice to keep a secret and play dumb or acknowledge it. I put my wife's favourite pants in the dryer. It was a genuine accident. I was trying to do the right thing. But those pants are now more an appropriate size for our seven-year-old daughter. And I sat at the table, knowing the mistake that I'd made, thinking... I don't, she just might not realise, maybe they just, I don't know. I went, no, man up, don't keep the secret. So I confessed, my wife, as she gracious, forgave me, but I still went and bought her a new pair of pants, the exact same ones the next day. So, yes, that's right. Let's pray, and then we'll kick on. Father God, we give you thanks for your presence. We give you thanks to God. We don't actually have to even invite you in that you're here anyway, because where two or more are gathered, you are also here. Father, we just pray you would speak today. God, that it's your word that goes out. It's your word that does the work in our hearts, Father God. And we give you thanks for the grace and love that's over our lives. Amen. God is not a secret to be kept. Secrets. I would just about bet my house that everybody in this room has a secret of some nature. Maybe it was you that ate the last Tim Tam but you have chosen to let your partner or significant other believe that maybe one of the kids got to it. Now, you're looking suspiciously guilty here. 
Perhaps you're an avid country and western music fan and you have wisely chosen to keep that fact to yourself over the years. Is it too early to pick on people in the message? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's it. Set the trend. That's it. Maybe your secrets are going to go a little deeper than a missing Tim Tim or a hidden collection of Lee Kernighan albums. But we all have them. We all have information or knowledge that nobody else or very few others are aware of. When the message translation of Matthew 5.14 says, God is not a secret to be kept, I agree, he isn't. If you live with the saving knowledge of Jesus, that is not something that you keep to yourself. But there's a big part of me that actually wants to argue that God just isn't actually a secret. Not in the, uh, the ordinary sense of the word. Because there are, of course, people who as yet have not heard the gospel or have not been exposed to God. The Joshua Project, and you can Google those guys, say that there are still a little over 7,000 unreached people groups across the world. It's a lot of people, right? But we don't have that problem here in Australia. While God may not be acknowledged by everybody, he's not unknown. In 21st century Australia and in Western society, God is not a secret. He's just become whatever it is we want him to be. Every year at about this time, in a couple of weeks in fact, in Nevada's Black Rock Desert, a city is built and a week later that city is removed, leaving barely a trace behind. But for the week that that Black Rock City, as it's known, exists, it is home to tens of thousands of people seeking an experience, an encounter and community at what is known as the Burning Man Festival. Now the following is an extract taken from the Burning Man website. And it's referencing this year's gathering. And I quote, Burning Man is routinely described as transformative. At the personal level, a transformative experience. At the group level, a transformative event or culture. From it changed my life to it's changing the world. Burning Man is a million stories and the through line across them all is change. A tempering or strengthening like metal in a forge or a glass in a kiln, shedding the dross, revealing the true nature within, a crucible of souls. Now, if you made a few, just a few strategic changes to that language, you've got a statement that you were very likely to find on any number of church websites from anywhere across the world. In their book, The Shaping of Things to Come, innovation and mission for the 21st century, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch say that Burning Man and other similar events are a cry from an emerging postmodern generation for a community of belonging, spirituality, sensuality, empowerment and liberation. Make no mistake about it, church. This is very much a spiritual experience. This is a search for encounter by the thousands of people who make the trek out to Black Rock Desert every year and for the millions more like them who participate in similar events and festivals all across the world. People know of God, but they don't know God. And the enemy's strategy is not to actually convince people that God doesn't exist. It's that he does exist. But it's just in whatever form, experience, or manner that you want him to. My poor wife, God bless her, has to live with me. Now, I can be hard work. 
one of my more, I was going to say challenging, but some would say childish traits, is that I just don't like being told what to do. Just don't. When we were dating, so a long time ago now, but when we were dating, I used to wear a hat a lot. just did. It wasn't for any particular reason. I just wore a hat a lot. But I was at Michelle's place. Yeah, like a baseball cap. I was at Michelle's place and her family, family dinner one night. Her grandparents are there. And her grandpa, lovely guy, not with us any longer, but a lovely man. Of course, a little old fishing. Yeah, but Wayne picked it already. Looks at me and says, didn't realise it was sunny in here. Might want to take that hat off. Now, I was, at that point, just mature enough not to say anything. There was no ring on the finger yet. I couldn't destroy it right there and then. But inside, I was like, (laughs) not only am I not taking it off, but I'm going to make sure this thing is on my head every time I see you now for the next... Now, before that happened, Michelle had already grabbed it and put it down. I'm like, just don't tell me what to do. Now, I've grown. My Jesus is changing me. But I think the enemy knows that working with absolutes and trying to tell us what to do or what to think doesn't really work anymore. He knows that if he spends his time and energy trying to convince people that the God of the Bible isn't real, that he just doesn't exist, it's actually likely to backfire. Because today's free-thinking, empowered, and stubborn generations will simply be like, do not tell me what to think. I will make up my own mind about God. And in fact, what happens is the enemy may well push people onto a path where they do encounter, as they go on a search, God and his son Jesus. And so the strategy is actually a little more subtle than that. With a sprinkling of truth and a focus on self, the enemy actually has people thinking that they are on a path to God or spiritual enlightenment enlightenment and fulfillment, when in fact he has them on a path away from God, just off target, distorted, a cheap, fuzzy, counterfeit picture of the real masterpiece. God is not a secret. We are not in possession of a new and as yet unspoken knowledge, not in our country and certainly not here in Canberra, but we are in possession of truth. And so our challenge, if you follow Jesus and acknowledge no other God but the God of the Bible, is delivering that truth in a way that its own light will shine on the falsehoods, the lies, and the counterfeits of the enemy. Three thoughts as we go back to our scripture in Matthew. But we're going to pick it up from verse 13 this time. If we can grab that up in the message translation. So it reads, Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Next one, 14. It's all right. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. The first thing, and the first thought that stands out to me there, is the clarity of purpose. 
Straight off the bat in verse 13, Jesus says, but this is part of his Sermon on the Mount, and he says to us, let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt, seasoning. And then he reinforces the idea straight away. He says in verse 14, here's another way to put it. You are here to be light. The ESV translation simply says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, the obvious implication is that you and I have a purpose, that we exist for a reason. Salt and light are known for what it is that they do. A chair that can't be sat on is not really a chair, is it? And if salt is not changing the flavor of my food, can it really be called salt? And Jesus kind of says, well, not really. You just throw it out. Now, as he often did, when he wanted to make sure that his followers understood what he was saying, he'd repeat himself with a similar analogy or metaphor, trying to reinforce the underlying principle. So Jesus follows up his statement about salt in verse 13, immediately with his one about light. And just because this is, again, how I like to work, it's a bit crazy in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe Peter, James, and John, they're the three, you know, right in there. They're like, Jesus, we hear it, we get it, salt. But maybe Bartholomew and Thomas are at the back of the group with blank looks on their faces going, why is Jesus talking about salt? And so Jesus is like, all right, let's try again. You are the light of the world. Because you acknowledge me and have chosen to follow me, you now have a new purpose in life. Just like salt changes the flavor of food, your purpose is to change the world around you. And just like light enables us to see and reveals the path before us. Your purpose is to be a light that reveals to the world around you the path to me. But if you dig even a little deeper, there's more in the salt and the light metaphors than what we see at first. It probably would have been more obvious to Jesus and his followers. Those listening to Jesus would have been familiar with another and probably at that time more important use of salt. And that was its use as a preservative. There were actual wars fought over control of the production of salt. Because in a time without refrigeration, you simply couldn't keep meat unless it was in salt. And so at that time, salt actually became a symbol of sorts for the prevention of decay. So not only are you and I responsible for changing the flavor of the families, the workplaces and the neighborhoods that God has placed us in, but our very presence should prevent the decay and corruption of God's world as we know it. And then light. It's the mere flick of a switch to us. Has anybody even thought about the fact that we're sitting in light this morning? But for Jesus and his followers, it was a far more intentionalized and pressing process. Do we have any candles? Do we have lamps, oils, torches? How many do we have? How many hours of light after sunset will we have tonight? We take it for granted, but in the ancient world, the absence of or lack of access to light was actually a real problem. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Used over and again as a very powerful metaphor for those living in the ancient world. Without light, there is increased danger. Without light, I'm at risk of stumbling and falling. Without light, I might find myself on a path that is close to, but not quite the right one. 
without light in my world, I might end up at Burning Man or another counterfeit scenario in search of my encounter with God instead of in the community of believers and in the person of Jesus where I will actually find it. That was a bit dramatic, wasn't it? (laughs) You and I are salt and light. We're what Jesus talks about. And we've had our purpose laid out for us. We are to bring out and preserve the God flavors in our world. We are to be the light that helps people see the truth that you know and that people are searching for. The truth that Jesus is the only way to a lasting and fulfilling encounter with the living God. And not slightly to the left or the right of Jesus either. Not following him in a manner of our own making but following him as we find him, as he is revealed in the word and as he calls us to. It's that truth that our words, our actions, the whole of our life and being need to be sharing with those around us. I'm just going to show a brief clip. It's a video uh, by a guy called Penn Gillette. Some of you may know him. He's one half of the magical duo Penn and Teller. Now, Penn's actually an atheist, and a few years ago he released this video on YouTube um, and it's an interesting take, challenging, interesting take on, sh- as a Christian, sharing your faith. And he's just telling the story about how at the end of one of his shows, they often come out and they'll meet people. And this gentleman came up to him, chatting with him, and then gave him a Bible. So we'll just pick it up from there. He's just given him the Bible, and then he just goes on to tell his viewers or people watching the rest. And I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever. And you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I was really convicted when I first saw that and challenged by it. Now, he uses the term proselytizing, but effectively it's just meaning sharing your faith. But I was convicted as I inventoried my own life. 
to see how much intentionality there was in sharing my faith, the truth that I know. And as I looked around me to see if the world that I was in was a little brighter or tasted any different because of my presence in it and God's presence in me. It's a strange way to look at it, but how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them that? We are all called. It is not just for pastors or evangelists. Jesus said, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We have the truth within us. God is not a secret, but for so many people, he is also not truly known. And our lives need to make him known. Our next thought is, we are witnessing whether we like it or not. People know that you are a Christian. If they know that you go to church, then like it or not, and whether you realize it or not, you are witnessing to those people. We are salt and light. That is a given. So the only question then has to do with the quality of the salt and the consistency of the light that comes out of our lives and how well that displays and or reflects the truth about God. See, most people have an opinion about religion or God, even if the opinion is that he doesn't exist. But part of the trouble for us as followers is that right, wrong or distorted, most people also have this ideal or a perception, a shared opinion about what a Christian should look like or behave like. And it's this standard that we're measured against. It's why when something goes wrong, it's why when there's a pastor who falls or something, you don't just see a 32-year-old man drink-driving, killed somebody. The headline is, Christian pastor, drunk, driving, killed somebody. We will constantly be measured because we're known for following Jesus. And you might think that you're flying under the radar as a Christian in your workplace or in your families and communities. You might think that you keep things on the down low pretty well, but you are being watched and your saltiness your light-giving capacity is being evaluated. So how aware are we of our living out the fruits of the Spirit in our families, workplaces, and neighborhoods? When it comes to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, how are we tracking? Would the people we interact with and associate with, are they going to connect those attributes to us? Or is that going to be a bit too much of a stretch? Now, we all know very well that it is not about being perfect. Jesus came precisely because we are not and we will not be on this side of heaven. But do our good works, as verse 16 of that Matthew 5 passage says, do our good works display intentional and visible demonstrations of a godly difference in our lives? Or do we more often than not give people the wrong impression of what it means to follow Jesus? Do we consciously think, how will my response, my actions in this situation, our works if you like, impact this person's understanding of and opinion about God? Will they reveal the path towards God or will they obscure it? I just wanted to share something too that I read a couple of weeks ago. Again, I was convicted. It's always difficult when you're preparing to preach and you've got to read all this stuff and you realize how terrible your own life is. But... I was convicted about my own casualness and lack of urgency in sharing the gospel and about being salt and light. It was posted by the CEO of Open Doors, 
They're an Open Doors Australia. They're an organization that works with and supports the persecuted church across the world. And again, I'll quote, In Central Asia, it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. Can you begin to imagine how effective this is in stopping the forward movement of the gospel? If you're caught running a Sunday school, you can be charged with religious extremism and sentenced to three years in prison. Today, we visited a church where the pastor is currently two years into a three-year prison sentence because he was caught with worship songs on his computer. We're now sitting in another secret church, worshipping at the top of our lungs with 15 kids, all with Bibles open in front of them. The pastor of this church is one of the true heroes of the faith for me, Ozod, a man of character and love, a man who has shaped my faith possibly more than anyone I've ever met. I notice that Ozod is not leading the service. In fact, not long after this, Ozod stands up and tells all the kids to come with him because kids' church is about to start. Remember, it's illegal to teach kids the gospel. I later asked Ozod about the change in leadership and he told me he'd handed over running of the church so he could focus on the kids' church because if someone is going to go to prison, he wants it to be him. Ozod says, Mike, it's easy to become a pastor when you're a servant become a master, sorry, when you're a servant. But becoming a servant when you're a master, that is almost impossible. It's what makes Jesus so amazing. And yet here is a man who has done exactly that. And it may be the most incredibly authentic leadership decision I've seen. Ozod tells me later that in the West, we look at kids' ministry as a glorified babysitting service. But he cannot for the life of him figure out why. Ozod says, children are the single most valuable investment you can make in the future of faith within any country. And he would go to jail for that any day of the week. Now, that's not just to highlight kids' ministry. Although I do think that glorified babysitting is a fairly apt description for how so many churches approach it. But more than that, it's to simply highlight what seems to be the gap in the importance placed on sharing the gospel between us in our very comfortable, self-sufficient and complex, yes, but not exactly persecuted society and those whose very freedom and lives depend on their silence. Just something to think about again as we move back into our weeks, our workplaces, our families and neighbourhoods. Our final thought for the morning. It's probably more a question actually. Is your Louis Vuitton bag real or fake? We have a photo, I believe. So is it authentic or is it counterfeit? Bag on the left is an authentic Louis Vuitton bag worth somewhere between three and a half and five thousand dollars. The one on the right is not real, and you won't pay anywhere near that for it. But why are we talking about Louis Vuitton handbags? <laughs> well, that has to do with value substance, and a day trip to Mexico. <laughs> in 2005, Michelle and I were in, were in the States. I'm glad you like that. It's good. Michelle and I were in the States, and we had a day trip tour down into Tijuana. So you're on the bus, and you've got the bus driver and the tour guide, and a good number of hours on the bus. And as you get closer to the border, the tour guide starts talking to you and telling you things, and he's like, okay, everybody, you've got to listen up carefully. Don't buy a gun and don't buy a knife. You will not get them back across the border. 
And then he's like, and if somebody offers you $100 to take this backpack and says, can you give it to my cousin Jose on the other side of the border? He left it here. Don't do it. Because Jose is not his cousin, and it's not school books that are in the bag. You will go to jail. Other than that, have fun. Go shopping. So you do. You hop off. And now Michelle and I are walking down the street. You have lunch. You're in Mexico. It's cool. And we find this shop and handbags. And Michelle's like, oh, I could do it with a new bag. Awesome. So we stop and you talk. And these guys are quite aggressive. They really want you to. And the guy says to us, $200, $200 for this bag. And I'm like, not a chance. Not a chance. But they want you to keep going. Come on. Genuine thing. Genuine thing. But no, it's not. Make me an offer. I'll give you $10. Oh, I got children. I go, oh, I bet you do have kids. Ten bucks. Michelle's embarrassed at this point. Trying to walk away. I'm like, no. Like, make me another offer. How about 150? Fifteen dollars. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. From 200 to 15. So we took it. And four weeks later, the strap's fallen off. Stitching on the bottoms come undone. You're like, surprise. Now the point is, the fakes and the counterfeits, they are made to at least look and feel somewhat like the genuine thing. But they're not. They do not possess the inherent value of the real thing. They do not have the blood, sweat and sacrifice that has been poured into them. They're cheap. And they're easily accessible. They lack substance. You will be left wanting or needing more. See, while the initial purchase experience still feels good, you soon realize, much like we did with the bag from Mexico, that you need to buy another one. The counterfeit no longer works. It no longer does the thing that you very much purchased it for in the first place. We are in possession of the genuine thing. The truth that is the forgiveness of sins, the gift of grace, and the unconditional love in the person of Jesus. And we have the blueprint for what it means to truly follow him. This is our guide for how to be salt and light in the world around us. People are searching for an encounter with God. So many of them just don't know it. Or they're buying into the lie that a counterfeit is in fact as good as the real thing. But like the thousands of people who make the journey every year back into Black Rock Desert, their search for spiritual truth and fulfillment will not end until they find themselves in the arms of Jesus. Our salt and our light should lead them there. Should be a boldness and a confidence to lead people there. Just going to close our eyes. We want to make sure that people have the opportunity to experience the truth. We want to make sure people have the opportunity to come into the arms of Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, 
We'd love to help you with that. But the other thing is, perhaps you're sitting there right now and you're actually thinking and or feeling like, hmm, maybe what I believe, maybe what I'm seeking, maybe what I'm chasing is actually counterfeit. Maybe it doesn't quite feel like the truth. But we'd like you also, we'd love you in fact, to come into the arms of Jesus, to come into truth. So if that's you, if you're in one of those two groups where you know that you don't know Jesus, you know you don't yet have the truth, or you're just not quite sure, in just a few seconds, I'd love you to raise your hand. I won't get you to come out the front or anything. I'll just get you to then come on down after the service when things are finished up and we'll pray with you. But if you want to meet Jesus for the first time or if you want to recommit or come back into the truth, we'd love you to raise your hand. On three, we'll just get one, two, and three. Don't wait if that's you. Be bold. Let God empower you to make that decision. Father God, we give you thanks for your truth in the person of Jesus. God, we give you thanks that you have made it easy for us to come into the truth. Father, we thank you that in you we have the only lasting connection with the living God. Father, we pray out and against all the counterfeits or the lies or the falsehoods and the fakes that are out there, God. And Father, we ask and pray that you would embolden us as followers of the truth to speak out about your love, to speak out about your forgiveness, to let our actions speak about that also, God. And Father, we ask and pray that you would help each one of us as individuals, Lord God, go back into our families, go back into our workplaces, our schools, our communities, and to be salt and light. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us as a community of followers here at C3 Monash to be salt and light, Lord God. To change the world around us, Lord God to shine a light that makes it so easy and so visible, Lord God, for people to find you in this community. Father, we love you and we give you thanks and praise. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, I'll hand back over to Ames. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.